We haven't talked about the HB6 scandal in, what, two weeks? But we're talking about it today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, and let's get right to it. We thought the next news we'd discuss about Sam Randazzo, the former Ohio public utilities chief, who First Energy said it bribed, would be about criminal charges. Nope. We have news about Randazzo winning a significant battle with law enforcement authorities. Lisa, what is it? Well, the 10th Ohio Appeals Court uh, made a ruling earlier this week, uh, Judge Laurel Beatty Hunt. They overturned a Franklin County Common Pleas Court order that was going to seize up to $8 million in assets from Puco Chair's former Puco Chair Sam Randazzo. And uh, in the Franklin County Court, Judge Chris Brown allowed the Attorney General Dave Yost to freeze up to $8 million in Randazzo's assets, but Yost was really focused on the sale of four properties worth $4.8 million and then a $500,000 home that Randazzo transferred to his son. All the money, the proceeds from those sales went into a brokerage account, and Yost was worried that it would just be, you know, just go wherever and not be traceable. So, uh, you know, he ordered that, but then the judge in the common police court, Chris Brown said, oh, well, we can, you know, put that up to $8 million, which is kind of odd. And that's why it was overturned. So um, the Arantazo appeal to this seizure made five arguments. Uh, the appeals court agreed on two of them. Uh, they, they, uh, they said that Judge Brown abused his discretion by saying that there was irreparable injury that would justify the seizure of these uh, assets and there was no explanation or no evidence. And also they found that Judge Brown failed to comply with state laws on garnishment, which requires a court appearance by Randazzo before they can do that. Because what happened was they, you know, the original order ordered the garnishment of Randazzo assets at three financial institutions. So, oops. Well, this is what makes our judicial system pretty great, right? Because everybody has rights. Everybody's protected. The state did move too quickly to get this stuff. They didn't really justify why they should have it. What, what did the ruling say? The, the, the court hearing on this lasted minutes. I mean, they, they didn't do due process. Mm -hmm. And even though First Energy said, yeah, we paid millions of dollars of bribes to that guy and this big criminal investigation is going on, you still have to respect rights. He has rights. He's not convicted of anything. There's nothing in the record that that would say you get to take it. And Dave Yost's team clearly didn't do the due diligence. So pretty much the right thing happened here, right? Yeah. And it looks like there was a little bit of overreach on the AG's part and the fact that, you know, he wasn't just going after, you know, the funds that he was worried about, you know, they, he got up to $8 million. So, and in a uh, judge, the appeals court, judge Blunt's opinion, she said, well, you know, they didn't say how they came up with that $8 million figure, but she did want to stress that the ruling of only covers procedural issues and doesn't reflect any opinion on the underlying merits of this lawsuit. Look, Dave Yost is trying to make sure that the harm Randazzo did, which is well-documented that Ohioans get compensated for it. He cost Ohio Ohio, a bundle of money. And so it's good that Dave Yost is trying to protect the Ohio interest. He just has to do the job correctly. I, my reading of this is that the door is wide open for Yost to go back into court and do this right and try and freeze those assets pending the, the completion of all the, the criminal cases. Is there anything, there was nothing the judges said about this is over, you're done, you can't have the money. 
Well, other than the fact that she says this doesn't, you know, attack the underlying merits of the case, I, I kind of read between the lines there and said, well, you know, there are other ways to go about this. Yeah, I, I expect we'll see Dave Yost's team making another appearance. Interesting story. We're still waiting for developments involving Randazzo. The investigation into HB6 is taking forever. It's today in Ohio. Our Washington, D.C. reporter Sabrina Eaton examines whether Donald Trump's endorsement of a couple of congressional candidates, which helped them win the primaries, will be helpful or harmful in the general election. Laura, this is fascinating because the center voters, the undecided voters, are not hardline Trumpers like the people in the Republican Party. And the feeling is they don't want to have Trump be high and present because it could hurt them. Right. The idea is that the primaries are where the most extreme voters go. So you're trying to appeal to the that arm of the party. And now you're trying to get all the central people, the people who might not have voted in a primary. So Miller seems to be trying to distance himself from Trump now that he's facing a Democrat, although that Democrat has um, uh, Deemer has a whole lot less money and name recognition probably than Matt Miller. So this is actually my district. It's Western and Southern Cuyahoga County, Medina and Wayne counties and Northern Holmes County. If you remember, that was Anthony Gonzalez of Rocky River and Bob Gibbs of Holmes County who were elected from there before long-term Congress. Well, Anthony Gonzalez is pretty new, but they both decided not to run for a reelection, maybe in part because of the backing of Trump for Miller. I mean, he worked, Miller worked in the White House. He had his endorsement. He had his favor. He, he got married at a Trump golf course in, in August. And I think that scared some people away. But now that we are coming toward the general, here's what Miller said. He said, yes, I have Donald Trump's endorsement. Yes, I'm proud to have it, but I am not Donald Trump. If you look at our campaign, if you look at the issues that we're focusing on, I am not engaging in the same type of political rhetoric as President Trump does. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, They are trying to distance themselves from Trump. They approached us about elements of a story we ran trying to get us to remove them, which didn't make much sense to me. I, I think they do recognize that the center voters are not Trump fans. I mean, mm-hmm. Trump, you know, tried to overthrow the government of the United States. January 6th is one of the worst moments in our history. And most people in the center get that, that that was a bad thing. And it's just interesting to me how the minute they win the primary, they they pivot. I mean, did you see the guy in Massachusetts? I think it was Massachusetts to win the primary. He kept denying that that Biden won the election. And as soon as he won the primary, he turned around and said, "No, nope, Biden was the winner." I mean, it's. I mean, that was that was the most naked kind of form of this this subterfuge. What well, we're seeing in Ohio is a more subtle form of that. Right. But Max Miller said the same thing. To be very clear, Joe Biden is our president. I don't know if he said anything different before the election, but he is still saying there are a lot of irregularities within the election that need to be looked at immediately. So he's trying to walk this really fine line of not angering any hardcore Trump fans and still trying to sound like a reasonable person. And then Matthew Deemer, he's a Bay Village podcaster. He was unopposed in the Democratic primary. He hopes that those ties to Trump make a big difference for people voting for him. He also thinks that abortion is the biggest issue facing women in this country and and voters. And Max Miller is saying, nope, I think it's the, I think it's inflation. I think it's the economy. And I think that really crystallizes two huge issues in this upcoming election and what the parties want it to be about. 
Well, and look, with what's happened over the last two weeks with the stock market, even if it was abortion, maybe it's shifting more heavily to the economy. I don't know. It, 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 this is a very interesting election season because of the abortion decision. We'll have to see. Good stuff by Sabrina Eaton. Check it out on cleveland.com. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. With fewer than 100 days before Armin Budish's time as Cuyahoga County executive ends, why is he about to launch a two-year study of whether the county can cut staffing? Leva, this makes no sense. It seems like he's sabotaging the next administration. It does sort of seem that way. This is another questionable initiative to be launching in the waning days of Armin Budish's administration. They plan they plan to put out a request for proposals for a consultant to reevaluate the county's operational and organizational structure to determine whether the county's payroll is the right size or or if maybe they can permanently do more with less. They've already been dealing with some pretty serious staffing shortages at the county. They're down 1,200 employees earlier in the year, and currently they have more than 800 vacancies. And Budish's chief of staff, Bill Mason, suggests that maybe in some of those departments, though he couldn't point to examples of which ones, we maybe we don't really need to fill those jobs. He said, we're down a lot and we're still functioning. There are going to be a lot of positions that are on the books that have been on the books for just a really long time, and maybe we don't have to fill them all. And, you know, we're talking about workers who are responsible for a lot of stuff, health and human services, public safety, justice services, infrastructure maintenance and improvements, and tax collection, a lot of stuff. And in some of those departments, the county has been aggressively trying to recruit more staff. Council increased pay for corrections officers to help support the jail. And just last night, county council approved raises for social workers to improve conditions at children and family services and to try to recruit I don't dozens, if not over a hundred social workers. But you know, Mason questions whether other departments already have the staffing needed to perform the expected duties. And of course, all of this is on the eve of a transition of power. Yeah. Well, I, I also go back to the budgeting period last year where where Budish told everybody any unfilled positions, we're just wiping them off the books. He outraged the prosecutor, Mike O'Malley. It's like, what are you talking about? You can't wipe off the positions. I got to hire people to get people prosecuted. We have this big bubble of people we haven't processed through the pandemic. And, and I didn't understand it then. And I understand this even less, except if he's laying the groundwork to say, when I left office, the county staffing was X. And look what my successor did to bloat it. Uh, you don't launch a two-year staffing study when you have fewer than 100 days left in your administration. And Chris Ronane said that to Caitlin. He mm-hmm. said, this is ridiculous. You, this is completely inappropriate to do this when you're going to be gone in less than three months. Yeah, he he was totally offended that Budish would impose this on the next executive and, and on taxpayers, for that matter, because a study like this costs money. He said that you know, he's been pushing a, a reorganizing count of county government in a, in a budget-neutral way that would create several new county offices to address housing and transportation and immigration and and uh, a county ombudsman office to handle complaints and connect residents to available resources. So whatever this consultant comes back with might or might not fit in with his vision for that. And, you know, to have to deal with a two-year study of, of you know, that's just, uh, it's just ludicrous to have to, to put that on the next the next executive. Lee Weingart, the Republican candidate, said, you know, well, actually, this is 
this is what I've been talking about. You know, cutting the size of the county payroll by about 800 jobs is is in keeping with one of his campaign promises. So he sees this this study as kind of a step in the the, the direction of where he he would be headed. I love the idea though that they're trying to portray themselves as spendthrift after having squandered $66 million in slush <laughs> funds, $50 million on the medical market. I mean, it's just, there's such Maybe a that's disconnect. the strategy here, is that, you know, we've been accusing them of, of squandering so much money that on the way out the door, they want to look like they actually do care about saving money. And it's it, all about optics. But they're supposed to serve the people. The county's sole purpose is to provide services in several areas. And that's where the focus should be. And so they're pulling back from that and building golf clubs. It just doesn't make any sense what they're doing. These 100 days can't go by fast enough. It's today in Ohio. Unlike in neighboring states, marijuana is not legal for general use in Ohio, just medical use. Yet this weekend, we will see a marijuana summit at the IX Center. Lisa, who is it for and what's it about? Yeah, it's called the Ohio Cannabis Health and Business Summit. It's going on this Saturday and Sunday at the IX Center, and they're expecting about 2,000 attendees from several states. So this was founded in 2019 by uh, Cleveland area resident Lenny Berry. I guess he used to be a local DJ here. He wanted to give public access to good medical information about marijuana because he was so tired of all the misinformation and lies that were out there. So that's why he started it in 2019. And and he, the very first one, or the only one really, because uh, it was sidelined by COVID the last two years, he got 650 people to the Crown Plaza Hotel in Independence, although it took him a while to find a venue because of the subject of the conference. But he's expanded it this year. So they're going to have people from the marijuana industry. They're going to have business people, lawyers, healthcare people. They're going to have 60 speakers, including uh, the first medical marijuana patient here in Ohio, insurance people, cultivators. So it's it's really just kind of an all-encompassing conference. They will have con- physician consultants on hand. They will discuss medical marijuana with attendees for free. And for $99, you can get a recommendation because you need a recommendation to get a medical marijuana card. Um, they're also going to have like a little bitty like job fair. They're going to have career opportunities with a panel of industry experts. So yeah, wow. You know, and Barry, he's been in the business for a while. He used to own a a dispensary in Lakewood, but he's currently part owner of a factory that manufactures CBD and hemp products. Well, And it is, I think, inevitable that we will have legalized general use marijuana. So these kinds of things will become more regular. But what did you say about that for $99, you can get a medical marijuana card? So you just go in and you say, I ache and give me a card? Well, I guess the doctor will have to, you know, assess your symptoms to see, but I think the list has grown. It used to be 21, you know, conditions. So yeah. So for a hundred bucks, you know, you can get a recommendation and then that gets you one step closer to a medical marijuana I think card. there might be one step missing in there. I think you do need to bring something from your, your general practitioner with you, but I might be wrong, but oh. I think that's true. Sounds like you've explored this. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Good stuff. It's today in Ohio. We were unable to report on restaurant inspections for a couple of years because the pandemic suspended them. But they're back and readers cannot get enough of them. Laura, when we publish a story about a county's inspections, it becomes our number one story of the day. So what are some of the highlights or lowlights of what we've been reporting so far? 
Zachary Smith has reported four of these lists so far. We've done Lake and Lorraine counties and then a city of Cleveland and then a Cuyahoga list. And it's so interesting looking at just the number of restaurants. There were like, I think, 4,400 businesses that received citations in Cuyahoga County. And then there's only like 865 restaurants in Lorraine County, So, which I was stunned by. These lists have... obviously a lot of names on them. There wasn't, we're listing the worst uh, cases. We're not going to list all 4,400 that have uh, problems in Cuyahoga County, but just the absolute direst situations that you probably wouldn't go to. I love the one in Lake County. The worst had 134 violations. That was Hibachi Steakhouse in Painesville. It is since closed, which you think, okay, that makes sense. Uh, There are gas stations. There's a McDonald's, a Burger King, a Subway, um, some Chinese restaurants, nothing really shockingly like high end that I would have been like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have expected to see that there. But no, oh, no, I, 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 Hoa in Beachwood, a Chinese restaurant, which is, has three restaurants across the city was on that list, which kind of shocked me. Well, there you go. And that's in Beachwood place. Yeah, yeah. You definitely, <laughs> you definitely want to check out these lists to see if your favorite spot is in here because each restaurant in Ohio is inspected twice a year, plus any follow-ups needed to check on any identified problems. And then other places that handle food to a lesser extent may be expected once a year, like Giant Eagle is on this list, one of the Giant Eagles, uh, the La Plaza supermarket. Some violations are really minor and some are fixed at the time of the inspection. They And the analysis that we did, that Zachary did, does not count violations that were labeled as corrected. And those that are critical may lead immediately to a foodborne illness, according to the Ohio Department of Health. They don't impose fines, but they can suspend or revoke operating licenses for really right. bad cases. So, so I think what Lisa just said is what we hear of all the time. People <laughs> pour over these things to see what they know. La Plaza is one of my favorite places. That if you make any kind of Mexican food, they have everything, every yeah. kind of pepper. It's it's a great place. So you see that and it's like, man, it's that's that's bad. And the I, yours and, truly at Playhouse Square, that one raised eyebrows for me. That had 49 food inspection violations. Mm-hmm. And and that's what happens. People scan this. They go, oh, my gosh, we go there. Should we stop going there? And it's just fascinating how much people pour over these. I mean, I'm not kidding. Every time we publish one, it just rockets up. Everybody's looking at it. We're talking about trying to parse them a little differently, not just by geography, but by different kind of cuisine or something uh, just to to show people what's going on, but uh, they're, they're all on cleveland.com. You can find them by searching for restaurant inspections or under Zachary Smith's byline. Right. And he has um, a tag that all of his are listed. So if you find any of his stories, you'll find all of the inspections right there. Yeah. Good stuff. Today in Ohio, you're listening to it. We mentioned the IX Center not that long ago. We thought it was permanently closed. Now it's up and running. We're going to have shows. We got something this weekend. We got the Christmas connection coming, but it's getting some big renovations. Layla, what's the word? Well, it's no indoor amusement park, which means <laughs> we'll never have to hear that godforsaken jingle again, even though just mentioning. I know that that is never coming back. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the, it still lives on in your head. The even, Ferris right? wheel is gone. So Ferris I don't know. wheel's gone. Yeah. And what is it without the Ferris wheel, right? <laughs> but <laughs> it's all those scary rides that that are pulled around on trucks. Those nausea inducing machines. But anyway, yes, reporter Sean McDonald tells us that contractors are working six days a week building these two huge walls in the IX Center, which will create a new 
530,000 square foot event space, and it's going to section off about 720,000 square feet for leasing opportunities. These renovations are going to include new LED lighting, new electrical and HVAC upgrades. The IX Center is going to get new paint, carpets, and an upgraded parking lot on its east side. The Industrial Realty Group, which now leases the building from the city of Cleveland, said it's spending about $50 million on these renovations. They're actively showing the building, but they haven't announced any tenants yet. And those are tenants who are expected to use the facility for light industry or warehousing. And IRG is is erecting a, a giant soundproof wall to divide that tenant space from the exhibition space where they're going to continue to host all of all of our favorite events like the Home and Garden Show and the upcoming Christmas Connection. They're saying that the renovations should be done in time for the start of the Christmas Connection on November 18th. But but Laura's contractors told her her edition would be complete on her June. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see how they do on the you know two million square feet of the IX Center. I don't know. <laughs> when, when I was reading this story, what I was thinking is, does anybody notice any of this? When you go to to the IX Center for a show, you're paying attention to the stuff that's there. It's the cars and the car show, or I guess the Christmas goods and the Christmas show. Do you ever notice the lighting or the yes, carpeting? A hundred percent. It's this ridiculously ratty, like red carpet <laughs> and those weird star shaped things, the hangover and the benches that are like purple molded plastic. Yes. I'm always like, when is this thing going to get upgraded? So I'm very excited. Wow. Well, and event planners, you know, that's what event planners look like when they're looking at space. I, I spent you know, a they lot of time at the boat show for a couple years in a row. Like but, a lot of time. Lisa, you say event planners are looking at up. They want to see upgraded lights. They want to see upgraded carpet. It's important to them. Well, I, sure. I mean, you know, the space is, you know, nine tenths of, you know, their their display. So, yeah, they want it. You know, they want a good backdrop for their products. I, I guess I've always just considered the place a big pit that has the space for big shows. So you just you go to the shows. But, Laura, you know, I, I take I stand corrected if that's what you notice when you go in. <laughs> Okay. That's this funny. Is I, w- I would have made the argument that you don't notice that stuff, but as soon as she said ratty red carpet, that is the thing that popped in my head <laughs> about the IX Center is mm-hmm. ratty red carpet. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have to check it all out. I kind of like the way Sean described the gigantic walls. It just sound, he got into the detail of how you build these enormous things. Okay, it's today in Ohio. We got more bad news about COVID based on a Case Western Reserve University study. Lisa, what danger does it pose for children? Actually, this is kind of shocking. I mean, uh, this uh, study from the Case Western Reserve University Medical School found that there is a 72% increase in type 1 diabetes in patients under 18, six months after a confirmed COVID diagnosis. Now, just to be clear, type 1 is used to be called juvenile diabetes. This is usually something people are born with or, or they develop at a very early age. It has nothing to do with insulin resistance like type 2. So study co-author Pamela Davis says, well, you know, type one is considered an autoimmune disease. Type two is not. So because in type one, the insulin cells are attacked by the body's immune system. So this study, she says, reinforces a suggestion that COVID increases autoimmune responses in, in the body. They, they, they're worried that they may see a substantial increase in type one diagnoses in the coming years. And they say that this risk is, is consistent 
across all ages from birth to 18 years old. Co-author Rong Zhu says more study is needed to see if this risk persists after six months, and they have to learn how to treat COVID-related type 1 diabetes in children. But she says they're also looking at changes in development of type 2 after COVID infection. So it might have an effect on type 2 diabetes, which there are many more people with type 2 than type 1 in in the U.S. Yeah, this is kind of terrifying. I'm somebody that deals with three different autoimmune conditions, and the last thing you want is to have another thing where your body is attacking itself. I hope that that is not, does not become one of the long-term effects of this, but it also is explains why every time they have a new vaccine, I jump out to get it. This is this is scary stuff. And if and if kids get an autoimmune disease early in life, it does make them more vulnerable for the rest of their lives. So it's pretty terrifying study. And they and they did this. This is one of those gigantic wide-scale studies where they look at what was mm-hmm. it a million people or something. It was yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not some small study. This was pretty pretty. But seventy two percent increase. That's like unbelievable. Yeah, it's almost scary. Very scary stuff. It's today in Ohio. We're less than a month from predicted peak color for fall in Northeast Ohio, which is followed by the inevitable drop of a lot of leaves. Our gardening columnist is suggesting we stop raking. Laura, count me as skeptical. How would that work? <laughs> I love this column by Susan Bronstein because she is always so practical and always advocating what's best for the environment and not just what's the prettiest way to do your garden. So in this case, it's letting your leaves alone. Basically, stop raking them, stop blowing them to curb. And when they fall into your garden bed or the woods, just leave them alone. And if they're on your grass, you can run them over with a mulching mower. If they're on your patio or something like that, she's got a leaf blow, like a I don't know. She she somehow picks them up and shreds them and gets them back into her garden. She basically says this is free fertilizer. They leaves decompose very quickly. By the spring, they're no longer visible. They add nutrients to the soil. They suppress weeds and feed beneficial microorganisms that keep the lawn healthy. So this is like gold for your leaves. Why are we wasting our time and energy and gasoline sometimes just to get rid of them? So you she have must- to mulch them, right? you got to yeah. mulch them. You yeah, can't I mean, just let them sit. You, if no, they're piles they kill your, of them, do not let them they sit. Do, they they kill will kill your grass. Right. Your grass. So that's not totally lazy. That takes effort. She's, but if you're going to still mow your grass anyway, and true. you know you keep mowing till November, then yeah, yeah I, 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 she must no. have small trees. I, 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 there's no way. There's a gigantic, gigantic oak tree in the yard behind mine, and when it drops the leaves, they all come into my yard for some reason. There's no way. I mean, if you tried to mulch, you know, four inches thick of leaves, you're 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 going to kill your grass. I, I do. I do agree that there there is you got to be sensible about this, right? Like I've got a one really big tree that dumps all the time. I will I will rake that to the curb. But she's I, I've been trying to follow this advice for years now, and it's like so goes against my perfectionist nature just to let the leaves sit. Like I'm so afraid I'm going to be judged for being like a lazy <laughs> landscaper. You will. You will. <laughs> but it is good for them. And so I've tried to collect them and put them into my garden bed and tried to leave them alone in the front beds where you can't see them because she's right i mean they do break down it is good for um it's good for the soil for the winter it's good for the plants so for all my neighbors who are listening i'm not just the deadbeat on the street i'm a gardening (laughs) genius you're an environmentalist that's right okay you're listening to today in ohio 
Layla's favorite professional athlete has now become the owner of a professional sports team. Who is he and what does he now partially own, Layla? <laughs> when I read this headline, my first reaction was, nah, because it's LeBron James, who I adore, and Kevin Love, who is now a Cavs veteran who helped us win the championship in 2016. And they are now owners of a new major league pickleball team. They're part of an ownership group that also includes Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green, LRMR Ventures, the family office of James and business business partner Maverick Carter, along with a bunch of other people. And the founder of Major League Pickleball is calling this a watershed moment for pickleball. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to imagine a bigger moment in the Big history deal. of pickleball. But seriously, pickleball <laughs> is a hugely popular and growing sport that's that's kind of like honey I shrunk the kids on a ping pong table I guess and and LeBron and Kevin Love aren't aren't the first celebrities to invest in teams they're probably I mean LeBron is probably the biggest celebrity but others include retired NFL quarterback uh, Drew Brees former tennis champion James Blake and podcast host and author Brene Brown and the league's current season is set to conclude with a tournament in Columbus, of all places, on October 14th through the 16th. They'll be playing for a $319,000 purse. Next year, the tournament winnings will be up to $2 million spread across six tournaments. So this is crazy, right? Well, you know, I was talking to our former colleague and Today in Ohio panelist, Jane Cahoon, just yesterday. And in retirement, she is a big pickleball adherent. That's awesome. And I, the more she talked about it, and there was a big Washington Post story about it last week, I keep thinking, man, I should go try this. I used to play an extraordinary amount of tennis, and this is easier on the joints than tennis would be. It sounds like it's just taken over. There's a battle going on between tennis players and pickleball players because cities are converting tennis courts into pickleball courts. That happened courts. in our town. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. making people mm -hmm. unhappy. So there you go. LeBron but James, the most famous can, Northeast Ohioan is an owner. Can I just add, I had an argument this morning with my husband about this story because he mentioned that they had converted our nearby tennis court into pickleball courts and that people of all ages seem to be out there enjoying them. And so I asked, do you think that we would get into something like that? Or do you think it would be difficult to pick up? And he said, oh, I guarantee you would find it difficult. Ooh. <laughs> oh, burn. Ooh, burn. And I was like, what? I have hand-eye coordination. I played volleyball and my eight-year-old was getting ready for school nearby. And she said, wait, you you did play volleyball or you do play volleyball? And I was like, get get on the bus. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, I love tennis and my mom plays pickleball and I haven't yet tried it because I, I don't know. I just, I'm like, it feels like cheating, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. I, I you know, Mark, another well. former colleague, Mark Vosberg is, and his wife are playing. And at Lisa, have you tried it? No, but my brother, um, he lives down in Twinsburg. He plays it three days a week. He's part of this big pickleball group, but he's been playing for like four or five years now. So he was kind of on the leading edge of this trend. He says, now there are so many younger people. It used to be just seniors. And he said, now there's a bunch of younger people coming and playing. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. It's today in Ohio. That does it for Thursday. We'll be back on Friday to wrap up of the week of news. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for being a listener to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>